I want to see no more bozo eruptions from the UCP. I want to see five bozo eruptions. Hey everyone, it's Outrage Machine with me, Tim Quarengesser, as always, and... Danielle Parody, Shama Rangwala, and Natalie Pond. First things first, a shout out to Troy Pavlik for letting us use his studio and a plug for Speaking Municipally, his podcast on all things Edmonton politics. Let's also give a big up to the Dave Berta podcast because they think our podcast is great and that's peachy. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, guys, what has hit your radar this week? Put up your hands and Natalie. I also want to talk about carbon tax outrage if we're going to talk about the outrage machine. Um, you know, I think conservatives in the last couple of years have done a really good job of making carbon tax a swear word. And unfortunately, I've been a victim of it, too. Um, so when we think about carbon tax outrage, it's really just about reminding people that the government is evil. The government cannot be trusted. They are going to take your money. And regardless if they promise you an income tax cut, the next government's just going to increase it. And we really saw that argument be super effective here in Alberta and also like in the federal leadership race for the Conservative Party. And this week with the uh, federal carbon tax coming into play for all these other provinces that didn't enact their own, we really saw it in Ontario. So what I want to do is break it down between what did we see in Alberta a couple of years ago when Rachel Notley introduced a carbon tax and what did we see in Ontario? So I think the one thing that really stood out for me the most with the Alberta carbon tax when it came out was the only memory I have of it is Derek Fildebrand filling up, filling up his truck talking about how expensive and, gas was going to be. And jerry cans. Yeah, he had and jerry cans. Yeah. That right. Many people noted, like, where are your jerry cans, people? <laughs> and I think the the one thing that will top that in my mind is uh, uh, the Ontario PC MPP, Billy Pang, recording himself in front of a gas station price sign for something like an hour, waiting for the price to go up at midnight. And so there's a one minute video on Twitter where he's basically just filming a selfie video of himself. And then all of a sudden the price changes and then he goes, there you go. Gas is more expensive. What do you guys take like the coming together, the unifying around this sort of meme of pumping gas? Is that because of Derek Fildebrandt in Alberta or because we saw it across the country over the past week? It's super relatable. Every family of four or, you know, suburban family that drives their kids to hockey they understand the price of gas. It's something that's really tangible to them, maybe more so than a change in income tax because, you know, you file your income taxes, you get this big refund. It's not as noticeable. But when you can tell a family of four, hey, your gas is now, you know, four cents a liter cheaper than it was yesterday because this evil government did this to you, it's something that's going to resonate. Progressives also saw, I think, some outrage here or, or reacted to those photo ops and they're 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 was created quite a lot of like funny chatter and commentary. Anyone want to jump on the progressive side of what happened out of that, the unifying of the progressive voice? Well, I think it's just really funny that people are against the carbon tax when it's a market-based solution. And so it seems like something that would come out of, you know, conservative ideology. So 
looking at all these, yeah, I mean, it makes something, it's really funny when you see a picture of like Andrew Shear looking like he's never pumped gas before in his life. Like really, it's like so much theater around all of this outrage that's being drummed up about the carbon tax. Um, but it does seem like because the opposing parties are for it now, because everybody wants market-based solutions, uh, the conservatives have to have to be against it, even though maybe it's something that they would like or have historically maybe been for these kinds of solutions. Um, so, but I mean, we're all like the earth is on fire. Like a carbon tax is not going to stop that. And so, so how that's was the crossover sort of into <laughs> Alberta when we saw Jason Kenney this week? Uh, someone, not him, backed his truck in, um, found out that he had a driver, apparently. Um, but <laughs> so uh, Someone backed his truck in, and then he filled up some gas, apparently. I didn't see the whole clip, but uh, so he joined in the meme, um, and, and I think that's right up the alley of this podcast. So, like, w- was it effective of, of him joining in because he's basically saying, let's get rid of our carbon tax and join that other carbon tax that everyone's upset about? <laughs> Conservatives have already done their job in making sure that people know the carbon tax is evil. And it doesn't matter if it's a market-based solution at this point because the carbon tax is evil and, and and no conservative at this point or very few conservatives are actually going to be willing to campaign on it openly. So Michael Chong campaigned on it during the federal conservative leadership race and was absolutely slaughtered for it, especially in places like Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, what the conservatives are going to say is a tax is a tax is a tax. And conservatives seem really invested in radical individualism. And so like just being against all taxes because that's taking money out of the individual's pocket. But um, we need we do need to do something. But the carbon tax seems like non-viable for for conservatives. Some of what Natalie said rings true to me um, that people did want it to they wanted the money to go towards saving the earth was what I heard. Not really a specific policy, but uh, perhaps light bulbs weren't inspiring to people in the same way that green technology or there are some rebates for solar as well from what I recall but as a strategy um, would it be realistic both to be able to give a rebate and then also save the earth with this one tax that's asking a lot of attacks is is it actually trying to save the earth or is it trying to transition us from a high carbon economy to a low carbon economy and, and actually drive innovation and stuff like that. Isn't, isn't... Yeah, I mean, it, it isn't really about saving the earth. It's about consumer habits and discouraging certain habits and encouraging others. But I think the reason why, um, you know, you're not going to see a conservative party introduce a carbon tax is the exact same reason why no other party is going to introduce a sales tax except for the Alberta Liberals. So I think there's a direct correlation between the electability of your party and the radicalism of the policies you're going to enact. And that is essentially what's happening with the Alberta Liberals implementing a sales or introducing the idea of having a sales tax. They're probably one of the furthest parties from forming government in this election. But that also gives them the ability and the freedom to just put out whatever they want for their election platform. And I think that's really commendable. I think it's a really great, bold policy. But you're never going to see something like that from a party that's actually within arm's length distance of forming government. Okay. And because we've talked policy, some platforms dropped this week. Anyone want to chime in on any of the, based on the outrage machine idea, is there anything within those policy platforms that got picked up on, got used, got manufactured? No, I, I didn't see anything. Nothing? No. Um, actually, come to think of it, maybe GSA is 
Mm. One that hit my radar was um, the UCP policy or the platform point of changing how workers' OT compensation is structured. And that definitely manufactured a little bit of emotion on, on my personal Twitter feed and also Facebook feed. I think Natalie was talking about mobilizing worker outrage. So there was a rollback of um, labor re- proposed labor proposed rollback of changes from um, 1.5% overtime uh, under the NDP government back to 1%, which was the previous uh, standard, the previous labor standard. So this is really interesting because I think it's one of the few places where there could actually be an overlap of voters between the UCP and the NDP because uh, it's a voter population. Um, often these people are uh, sometimes they're unionized workers. So uh, I think we're, we're not going to see a lot of places like that in the election. Um, the outrage came, I think, from, let's say, Alberta Federation of Labor. Uh, it came from the progressive PACs talking about, like, why do you think that um, why is it acceptable that Jason Kenney wants to pay you less? Like, why does Jason Kenney hate you? Uh, which is always my favorite political outrage tool. Well, and I think a lot of the outrage also came from just regular Albertans who maybe work in construction or do field work. So for context, the word for word quote from the UCP platform states, return to allowing banked hours to be paid out at regular pay instead of time and a half. And one thing that the UCP has done is actually issued a clarification because they're saying post media didn't interpret their policy the right way. So what they did on their Unite Alberta Twitter account was actually explain that it's going to go back to a pre-NDP government legislation. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I have it in my Twitter mention somewhere. But essentially go back to the way the rules were before. And I don't know enough about this issue to actually be able to dive into it closely. But I think in terms of messaging, this is really interesting because the UCP platform says one thing, but they're using their Twitter account to clarify what it actually means. And I don't know about you guys, but the, the construction workers I know and that I'm friends with don't check Twitter for their news. Like they went to the Empton Journal. They saw the, the, the article and the headline. They then went to the UCP platform and it confirmed what they saw. And that's the end of it. And now they're mad. I was wondering if you were going to say that the, the paper got it wrong and then like it, it's up to them to kind of clarify or somehow make sure that everyone understands. But it's actually up to the, the party to get it really clear and, and concise the first time, is it not? So I've been told that the UCP has asked Postmedia to issue a correction and a retraction of that original quote that they had put out i i don't know if that's happened or if that's actually the case but at the end of the day this is what it says in their election platform and unfortunately i think that's what matters the most i agree yeah and i think a a lot of this ambiguity is deliberate because they're just saying they're going to roll it back to before the ndp was in power but they've also said that there's actually going to be no public consultation as they roll back a lot of these policies and to me that's something that people that there should be more kind of you know talk about this because a policy like this actually helps workers but it's part of the whole ideology of you know if we cut taxes for corporations cut expenses for the corporations too that it can spur innovation there's so much data about that not being the case um historically even in alberta but uh you know that doesn't really that doesn't really matter to the outreach somehow machine. went through all of that without saying ronald reagan so sure yeah yeah, well yeah. i mean historical data <laughs> <laughs>
anything from any of the other platforms? So I'm just on rachelnotley.ca right now because I was looking for their platform. But I think what's super interesting is that on both, you know, rachelnotley.ca and the Alberta NDP website, under the press releases, there is an insane obsession with Jason Kenney. So, I mean, I'm looking at the initial press release on albertandp.ca and the first one, April 2nd, Jason Kenney, blah, blah, blah. April 2, Jason Kenney. April 2, Kenney. April 2, Kenny. April 1, Jason Kenny. April 1, Kenny. March 31st, Kenny. March 31st, Kenny. And finally, there's one about what Rachel Notley and the NEP are going to do. So in that, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight press releases in a row before I reached one that was positive about Rachel Notley. And I think that's really telling about how they're using the outrage machine to drive the narrative in this election. It makes me think of uh, the UCP, basically, so they incorporate Rachel Notley's name into a lot of things. So like the Rachel Notley job killing carbon tax. So they like they load up almost in like a German compound word, a bunch of feelings into one thing instead of what I think you're pointing out this kind of obsession with like, hey, we have some more information about Jason Kenney. I mean, I think I think you're right that there is an obsession coming out of the NDP like that. But there there does seem to be on the flip side. Um, a, a using of her name whenever possible, but just in those like sort of com- compounding it. Any any thoughts? So I think the UCP has really balanced the way that they've laid out policy, but also attacking the governing party, which is their job as the official opposition. The governing party, which is the NDP, is actually, in my opinion, acting pretty desperate here. They have the last four years that they can be championing they should be laying out their plan for the next four years if they want to be reelected. Yet they're obsessing over the leader of the official opposition. And I I think that's actually really sad. What, why do you guys think that's happening? I mean, like... Well, that's the strategy of any political uh, campaign. I mean, if you look at, like, an email that I got from the United Conservative Party this morning is, you versus the Trudeau-Notley alliance. The Trudeau-Notley alliance has been a disaster for Alberta. So like you said, there's that compound word. There's putting together, I mean, Trudeau is a swear word mm-hmm. in Alberta. Liberal is a toxic word. So they're, they're using um, email campaigns maybe as opposed to press releases. Uh, but that's, that's also strategic, right? Mm-hmm. Those emails are driving fundraising. So I'm sure if you scroll down, it's a fundraiser campaign. Mm-hmm. Whereas these points in the press release section are merely just press releases. And I think there's a distinct difference, and it's an important difference between the two. So I think different platforms are being used differently. And so, uh, you know, the press releases attacking Jason Kenney. Um, if you look at the platform, though, so we are talking about platforms um, right now. One thing that really struck me, because I'm going to talk about, like, the white supremacy stuff a bit later. But so the UCP it has $2.5 million um, that they're you know, setting aside for, like, fighting hate or or something kind of ambiguous in that way. And the NDP is starting a whole ministry of multiculturalism. And so if you look at their platform, that's where they have actually in uh, separate sections for each topic, this is what we've done in the last four years, and then, like, kind of in a box, like, this is the way the graphic works, this is what we're going to do. And so they're using that um, just, I guess, 
hoping that people will read that if they want the information about policy. And then, yeah, the press releases are anti-Kenny. This is also a tactic we've seen in so many political campaigns. It was a criticism of the Democrats in 2016 that all they did was talk about Trump and not policy. But there actually was a lot of policy. It's just a messaging issue of like where the policy is. Is it in the... Twitter, is it Instagram, is it press releases? But let's, let, let's step back and like imagine we're a voter mm-hmm. and let's let's recognize how cynical people are these days. Does this actually do more harm when we see this kind of mudslinging? It's a really awful term. It's like it's so inaccurate like or, or old timey, but mudslinging against sort of like personal attacks. Does this disengage people and only engage the base? Like, are we leaving behind the middle here or the people that are kind of not really engaged in politics? And when they tune in, they see like an uh, either like a sort of an attack ad or an, uh, this, this is why this person's awful or this is why this person's scary. Is that mm-hmm. is that actually disengaging the voter base? It's disengaging me as a partisan. Okay. And so I, I think it absolutely sh- is disengaging you know people that maybe just jump into politics every four years and back to danielle's original point i think the the medium in which you use for various types of messaging is really important so you brought up ucp emails well you only get those if you signed up for them and opted in but a press release is something that goes out to how did you get all them? newspapers <laughs> or you know if you're at a press conference like i brought up sarah hoffman's first press conference when the writ was dropped last week when we did the podcast but her first press conference was to attack Jason and so I think that it's important for us to distinguish what medium is used to deliver each type of message is it something that really is only supposed to be directed to the base and the main goal is fundraising is it supposed to be something that's directed to the general public and is expected to have a wider reach and maybe not drive fundraising but spread the word of the platform and and each of those are going to be used for different reasons and rightfully so they certainly are used for different reasons um but i would say it's still a part of the overall machinery uh the political machinery so it still feeds into the outrage machine you read the emails and you come away with a certain perspective your perspective is regularly reinforced so if you are reading only conservative party as opposed to conservative party and ndp messaging you get a small slice of the issue it's presented uh with an emotional emotional appeal, which is, you know, in rhetoric, the most effective emotion for action. You can't use an ethical appeal and get action. You have to use emotion. So driving fundraising, driving votes, it's all the same thing to me. One thing I wanted to say about the UCP platform is I think credit needs to be given where credit is due. And they released a 118 page platform, which is largely text. Like, I mean, I'm scrolling through it really quickly now. And there is a lot in here that's really impressive for an opposition party to lay out such a detailed pol- or, um, election platform, and they should be commended for that. Yeah, I mean, can I jump in here? I think we're drowning in policy in week two, which is really interesting. Um, the UCP is, uh, platform is certainly longer. It's uh, very detailed. There's a lot of specifics in there as to what will be retained, what will be repealed. Uh, we're getting into policy a lot more than I ever hoped we would, but there's, you can't help that because this is a very policy-heavy uh, election. But I think in that, um, I did see a bit of a miscalculation that drew up a, a big part of the discussion that we saw in the last week, and that is education and GSAs. So I, I think the GSA discussion was a small 
piece of the overall UCP platform. I don't think they intended this. Like, this is our star policy piece. Uh, but it was a piece that is also very easy to campaign against on the NDP, so or with it for the NDP. So I'm, I think that was an interesting, perhaps, miscalculation that so, uh, the UCP made, partly because of the breadth of the policy that they produced. One thing that I saw is, like, I think I would add to that, the miscalculation on injection sites or consumption sites. It seemed to me a miscalculation of taking the temperature of where the province is at on that. So does anyone have any thoughts on why that might have been in that platform? Why that, to me, it seems like a um, throwing a bone to people that don't like these sites that won't have to ever, ever live with the ramifications of them closing or moving. Like So basically, um, my supporters are never going to have to deal with these sites. I don't like these sites. Let's get rid of them. Yeah, let's get rid of them. They don't have to actually look at the what happens when that happens. Whereas places in like inner city Edmonton have been advocating for these things for years and years and years. They've already done all this consultation that's called for in this policy or this platform. And they're they're pulling their hair out like we're going back to this. So any well, thoughts? it's pretty well documented that conservative supporters and, and elected officials generally are against safe safe but i'm sorry i don't I, I know there's a bunch of different terms for safe consumption sites uh safe injection sites I'm, I'm not sure what the right word for it is but to that point i i know that the edmonton chinatown community is largely against them here um in the core despite the amount of consultation that's happened and i've worked with the chinese benevolent association on a lot of this because they feel like they were completely ignored in the macaulay area neighborhood Businesses are having to deal with the ramifications of having um, a number of injection sites closely clustered in that area. And they've really found that it's affected their ability to do business. So I don't know that it's just a conservative thing at this point, because this isn't a group that, you know, always votes one way or the other in an election. It's coming down to a, a neighborhood thing as well. It's a, it's a not in my backyard problem. So we've got people that live out in Riverbend or west of the Hende who are, are really up in arms because they don't want to deal with it in their neighborhood and probably never will. But then you've got people that live closer to the core who are dealing with the consequences on a daily basis who feel like they're largely being ignored and they're being told, well, it's for the greater good. And I think Tristan Hopper had a really great take on it a couple months ago where he basically said like his yard is strewn with needles and the city won't do anything about it. Like he's called it into the city to come pick up and they basically say, well, because it's on private property, you're going to have to deal with it. And I think that people are feeling like their concerns are being ignored. I'm not going to go there. I vehemently disagreed with Mr. Hopper. Um, Me too. Yeah. The, 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 so I've actually gone to an injection site. And so if you see someone use one or two needles there and put them in the sharps box, that's two needles that aren't on the street. And then you wonder, do, would people prefer those needles to go outside and per potentially have people in alleys not living? Is that somehow preferable to these sites? I don't understand... I actually don't understand the the, the flip argument here. That, well, that's like, getting into the policy side of it. But yeah. I think the, the important part of it here is the messaging of right, it. Right. So the messaging that the UCP is putting out is like, we understand that people have concerns about it and we're listening to you. Yeah, yeah Tim, I think it was interesting because you called it, a, like I was calling the GSA as a political miscalculation. I don't know that I would put safe injection sites in the same field because I think, like Natalie said, they are appealing to, like they're appealing to sort of a, 
maybe a silent majority or the perception of a silent majority, what their assumption is, the rural communities that maybe don't deal with it but don't like it, I think it actually plays well to their base. Whereas the um, the GSA, how it would contrast the two, uh, the Gay Straight Alliance, there's a diversity of thought in, in a, the, the newly united conservative party there. Not everybody thinks this is an important issue. Some people don't know that much about it. Some people are completely outraged by the existence of GSAs. And other people are like, can we just let the kids have the clubs already? Having, having been in the newspaper business for a while, like GSAs have been like at the top of the the agenda and the must talk about and report on for like ever in this province. So I think maybe what I should say is the miscalculation is the GSAs and this kind of combined because mm. it, it, it sort of plays into this this narrative of like lack of empathy. So I think that the UCP maybe made a tactical error in bringing this debate up again. But I think the, the more interesting thing is how the NDP have has once again just jumped on this opportunity and are using it to drive this anti-Jason, anti-UCP momentum. And when I think about a lot of the, the things that have happen, been happening in the last couple of weeks, I really wonder, is, is Rachel Notley popular because people like the NDP? Or is she popular because people don't like the UCP? And I think we see that in how the, the NDP has framed the UCP position on GSAs. And so when I look at how the NDP has done so, I think they're telling an outright lie compared to what the UCP has actually said or what they've actually put forward. But again, that's a messaging thing. It doesn't matter if the NDP is telling the truth or not on what the UCP platform is actually saying about their position on GSAs, because the NDP is using it to rally this anti-UCP, anti-Jason movement, and they've been rather effective at it. Do you think the NDP, so again, I, I went to the rally, uh, I, was, I was intrigued. Um, I, didn't, I never used to do that as a, as a full-time reporter, but I went. Um, there were representatives from every other party there, so it felt like it wasn't just an NDP thing. So well, I don't know if you- Let's put it this way though. It's, it's not an NDP thing, it's an anti-UCP thing. Right. But the NDP is saying, Jason Kenney wants to out gay kids. That's not true. Jason has flat out said that that's not what he wants to do, and he would never want to do that. But the NDP has capitalized on an opportunity to drive their narrative and their message and twist what the UCP has done. Basically, a UCP, the UCP exposed a weakness, and the NDP capitalized on it. And what they're doing now is engaging their outrage machine and driving a lot of donations but, from it and driving a lot of support from it. Because if, they've, they've reminded people that they're the only party that can beat the UCP. Political messaging is ultimately more important than what the policy or platform actually is. And we'll all be kidding ourselves if we think this is an election that's going to be won on which platform is the best. That's never been the case in any election. It's always going to be which team had the best message. We saw it with the federal liberals in 2015. They had the better message compared to the federal conservatives. And that's what this election is going to boil down to as well. That seems so cynical because even looking back at that election, I mean, something like the niqab ban wasn't, which Jason Cunney was involved in, isn't actually just an issue of messaging. It's people actually being scared to like leave their homes and if they're going to be able to access services. Like that is like a different thing than being seduced by messaging or repulsed by it. Um, but I it just was a also... message though because the liberals said, hey, the 
federal conservatives are racist. Like it's all that about how you frame actually the like that's what racism is in like public discourse because you're not allowed to just say we don't want Muslim people here, so it has to be like disguised in some kind of but way. Like that's that's not the point of our discussion though right now. Like our, our the point of our discussion right now is not on whether a policy was right or wrong, but it's about how parties frame discussions one way right, or another. But the content of it matters is my point. Like it's not just about like we're mad because you know, there's a framing that the that the conservatives were racist with the niqab ban. Like, that's not actually, like, the only thing that's going on there. But if content matters then, to. then the, the NDP should have their hands slapped for telling an outright lie. So I'm not exactly sure what the lie is. Because that Jason Kenney wants to out gay children? That's so the lie. So the thing about letting teachers and principals, um, the message is the is from the platform that the teachers and principals will be given discretion, and it's parents who are worried about their kids being gay, who are the ones who are going to demand that if they're worried out of like for lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons could be that they're homophobic. Sure. But that's that's very different than Jason Kenney wants to out gay kids. I think it's a it's a I mean, there's a semantic argument here. It it is easy to campaign. I grant you that on Jason Kenney wants to out gay kids because we're working with the, the population with a limited attention span ourselves included so to say like jason kenny wants to potentially bring awareness to the fact that people are participating in a gsa which is more accurate uh doesn't really highlight the heart of the concern which to me the people who are concerned about the issue are concerned that children will be outed in the streets, swastikas on signs. Um, I had a friend who lives kind of out in the burbs and she saw a swastika on like a neighbor's garage. And so this seems to be kind of ramping up. Um, On Saturday, there were like white supremacists on um, White Ave, just like really close to where I live. And so that's really upsetting. And a lot of them, you know, they they really hate Notley. This is when we talk about outrage machine. Um, They're also conflating Notley and Trudeau in the ways that Danielle was was talking about. Um, And a lot of them are, you know, they think that, you know, Jason Kenney will get the pipeline built. This is is the sort of stuff that they're talking about. Um, But I want to talk about the ways that uh, victimhood is being framed. So I talked about the rebel the last episode, and there was a rebel reporter who came to one of the marches, uh, the GSA march, and was kind of videotaping people. And Bashir Mohammed was like, this guy is a white supremacist, like believes in white replacement theory, um, which, you know, is like a section of the rebel website. So I think is a fair thing to say, um, saving the Christians. Um, and, you know, really was claiming victimhood and outrage. And so I wanted us to think a little bit about the ways that the strategy is used when you are the one who is targeting people and then you get to claim outrage when someone says, like, get out of this space. This is, like, not the space. This is not, like, the space for you if we're marching for gay rights and you're against that. Like, they're trying to, you know, make certain claims about Rights, you know, and uh, the rebels kind of doing the opposite, but they get to claim outrage. Well, one of the things that's really fascinating is the lesson, and I, I 
don't know where I'm at with it, but what's the responsibility of the political party uh, uh, who sometimes, let's say, if we t- talk about GSAs uh, on both sides, are, are using their base, they're mobilizing their base, uh, far more so on the NDP side because there was literally a march. Um, and then the fallout from messaging in the political campaigns, like there, there has to be an association to me between seeing swastikas and seeing GSA marches and what's going on in our political sphere. It's not, they're not separate, but then what onus do the political parties have? Like what are their responsibilities when this stuff starts happening? None. The UCP doesn't control the rebel, just like the NDP. I mean, I don't think the NDP controls press progress. I hope not, but it's not like these are, are, you know, um, organizations that are in the pocket of one another. It's not, Ontario News Now that Doug Ford uh, created during the Ontario election to act as their own news source. These are independent organizations that are trying to drive the narrative in a way that they want. And many conservative politicians have disavowed the rebel. And I think you're going to be very hard pressed to find mainstream conservative supporters that actually support the rebel. Yeah, I mean, the rebel was was one piece, but I'm talking about what happens um, when we're in the middle of an election. Like, you know, we brought up the niqab and that, that was really, that was a really dark time for Canada. I felt like just the, the barbaric cultural practice, it was just more the, the tone uh, and the emotions of some people who are supporters kind of let out. Uh, like that's where the outrage machine can, becomes really interesting for me. Can I try to, what I think I hear your question as, and maybe that's the wrong thing to say here, but like, I think you're like, is there, res- is there a responsibility for, on the part of the parties to like lower the temperature a bit? Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, I think I did ask that. I said, what's the responsibility okay. of the political party? <laughs> Sorry, well, so the UCP like kicked out white nationalists from their party. We well, saw this in the Edmonton West Henday nomination. They kicked out a candidate who is sympathetic toward, or sorry, nomination contestant. I'm very picky about those words. They kicked out a nomination contestant from the nomination who was sympathetic to listening to white nationalists the ucp completely disavowed the sons of odin and related groups i don't know what else they should be expected to do at this point because they have been on the record saying we don't support this mm-hmm. so so any but- association is not because of what the UCP is doing. It's because of what other people want to link to the UCP. So then what you're saying is that they do have a responsibility. Like, you, they're disavowing white nationalists. Do you think that but they like, shouldn't they, be doing that at but all? But they did it in the context of something happening within the party. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, how many people are actually white nationalists? I, like, I, I don't want to discount the amount of racism in this world because I've experienced it. I'm a visible minority in this country. My family's been here since the early 1900s. We've all experienced it. But for if you expect a political party to respond to every little bit of outrage that exists in this world, I think that your 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 expectations are are, are misguided. But but when it goes to the point where there's swastikas on signs, like where would you draw the line? Then? Well, they like, weren't that... actually swastikas. I think they were they were backwards. But well, then they, that just means they don't know how to draw swastikas. <laughs> detail there, but the, the like, original... I mean, they weren't drawing the India sign yeah. for so the, or the like, Sanskrit yay, sign for prosperity. He disavowed that. I just like every other party did, but like, why are we like? I guess the like, question I guess the point is, is like, like they're they're mobilizing some kind of like white grievance outrage that makes their party attractive to this. Not so are you accusing the not, UCP of being white nationalists? Though? I'm like, are you accusing that, like, the disavowal, supporters of writing swastikas on Rachel Notley signs? I'm saying that the disavowal 
is is treating each thing as if it's an individual instance when they it happens like once a week. There is literally no proof that the UCP was linked in any way, whether it's supporters of the party itself, to the vandalism of signs. Sure, we've they're seen, linked to their nomination. We've seen contestants, though. that were kicked out. So, I think if we're going to talk about the def- like the defacing of signs, let's talk about all the other parties that have had signs defaced. The Alberta Party has had um, signs with racist rhetoric written on it. The Alberta Party has had sexism or sexist slurs written on their signs. Are we going to say now that the NDP is doing that because the Alberta Party and the NDP are uh, fighting for the same votes? Like that's that's almost the level at which you're trying to equate those two issues. But I think the UCP they... has also had signs destroyed as well. So like, are we going to accuse the NDP of destroying the UCP signs? Like we're we're trying to make this into something where we're trying to blame one party or another, and that's part of the outrage machine. And part of the irony of discussing outrage machine is trying to understand that we're all a part of it as well and yeah. trying to take a step back from that and understand what our biases are. But, but and I think Danielle's question was just asking it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a pointing of fingers. So it was, a, it was asking. No, is, I didn't actually it... say the, U- the UCP is responsible for swastikas. And so therefore, what should they do? What I'm talking about is what onus do political parties have to decrease the temperature in the discussions when it is political rhetoric that ramps this up? I mean, the existence of the signs, I guess, give them give a space for swastikas to be written on them. Um, maybe that's a victim blaming the signs. But the reason but, I brought that up is because Shama equated nomination contestants who were supportive of white nationalists to the UCP. So that's why I brought it up. I just mean they're in the UCP and there's more than they're one kicked incident. out. Okay. the next week we're going to see something interesting i have no idea the 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 way it's going to be put together yet i don't know if there's been any clarity on that but we're going to see a leaders debate and i think there's going to be a lot of uh, potential sort of spinoffs out of that as far as the outrage machine goes but any anybody have any thoughts or predictions on what we're going to see i think i'm just hoping there's going to be you know a lot of commentary with fact checking and all of that because it's really easy uh to just use rhetoric without having anything to back it up in, in a platform like that. Yeah, I mean, as we're talking, uh, I think we're, we're going to see for sure the UCP will be hitting the NDP on economics. They're have, they have a very robust policy when it comes to the, their economic approach. Uh, and you're going to see the NDP hitting on social issues. They've Both parties have kind of established very early on what we're going to hear over and over and over again. And that, you know, that's... An important part of messaging is you have to tell people things seven times to get it through to them. Uh, we're also seeing a few stories breaking. Um, you know, Mark Smith's comments from 2013 are just breaking on Twitter. So I think that's going to make it easier to for the uh, NDP to continue uh, their sort of one trick pony where they're campaigning against uh, Jason Kenney specifically and social issues. So in this debate, like I, th- I think it's going to be largely talking points with 
nothing actually behind them. Like, it's not going to have any meaning. And this is not dissimilar to any political debate that's ever happened, any candidate forum that happens in whatever community league. It, it's going to be about which leader sounds like they are the most competent or which leader stumbles the least in the debate. And that's largely what they all boil down to. Um, and if we're going to talk about outrage machine, like let's talk about how Notley tried to rile up the Freedom Conservative Party base this week. Like, so Rachel Notley basically held back on confirming her attendance. Um, and I'm not sure how this is all related. I just skimmed the story, but essentially Jarek Fildebrand wasn't included. The Freedom Conservative wasn't because Freedom Conservative Party wasn't included in the debate. But his argument is, well, the Alberta Liberals are and we have one MLA and they have one MLA, so we should be included. And I think this is really interesting. And it goes to Outreach Machine because Rachel Notley, of course, wants Derek Fildebrand there. Derek has this personal vendetta against Jason. Derek's basically going to attack Jason the entire time because that's what Derek lives to do. And then Rachel Notley comes off looking like the good guy because she doesn't have to say anything negative. It's it's the most brilliant, perfect well, strategy that she could have done. Doesn't it play into, as we were talking in the last episode, this uh... I don't know if it's uh, obsession is the right word, but just concentration on this word of unity. And this would display this absolute lack of unity. You've got like these two conservatives that are going to take, you know, pieces off each other. Um, and it, it, Notley will just sit there and grin. Uh, it's exactly what she wants, is it not? I'm not sure that Jason's going to punch down and necessarily go after Derek, but Derek's certainly going to be focused on Jason. And so when we combine that with the fact that the NDP oppo machine is still in full force, they're probably going to release a number of more things between now and the leaders' debate. Um, I think we're really going to see this be an attack on Jason and the UCP, and we're going to have to see who comes out of it. Is it going to be Rachel Notley comes off looking like a bully? Is it going to be people have sympathy for Jason as a result? Or is that message actually going to resonate with people and and it's going to work and people look at the UCP a little bit differently as a result. Can any of you remind me, I was here in 2015, I moved here in 2013, so I was definitely here for the 2015 debate, but I don't remember, had the Prentice look in the mirror comment happened pre-debate or was that post-debate? Because I remember Notley coming into sort of everyone's imagination as a potential premier that night that like she actually won the election in some way through that debate that it was, she looked uh, like the leader it was a comment from Jim Prentice uh, math is hard uh, that's what really that, uh, was, the that was the moment in the election the look in the mirror comment I believe was actually before this I think that there was, was in his televised um, platform release when he did that really awkward um, get her done graphs and and it was weird angles and yeah but the, yeah freshly pressed jeans rest in peace <laughs> like his, like the math was wrong from what i remember but he didn't need to say math is hard yeah um but so i just wanted to go back um that that night she kind of won in some ways or some people attribute mm -hmm. that to like a big factor behind the orange orange wave as some called it so is she in a different position this time when we're thinking outrage, does she have to have a totally different strategy to win this one? Does Jason have to have a totally different strategy to, to hers in 2015? Yeah, I mean, in 2015, she was kind of a scrappy underdog, right? No one thought the NDP could win, and expectations are going to be so, so high this time. Kenny is also, he, he's a very careful uh, political strategist. I don't think you're going to see the kind of slip up that 
uh, you saw from Jim Prentice. So I, I'm not anticipating that. But if debates don't mean anything and it's all talking points, and I say bring Derek in because at least Derek is funny. <laughs> at least we'll laugh. It's the trolley. <laughs> it's the chaos demon in me. <laughs> So we spend so much time talking about the UCP and NDP platforms, but I think one that we really need to cover just from the stupidity of it is the Alberta party policy that was released today about how they want to reform our taxation system. So essentially they want to be Quebec. They want to essentially collect all of the income tax themselves and remit it to the federal government so that they can keep whatever they want. So Quebec is, is completely different than any other country in the Canada for context. Uh, or pro- sorry, province, um, they they have basically two income tax forms, whereas every other province has one, and the federal government collects both provincial and federal tax. Quebec doesn't. Why this is related to outrage machine? Well, we have seen that Quebec kind of gets whatever Quebec wants. And I think that Mandel is trying to copy that or emulate that. I think he's trying to drive that argument that maybe the UCP has been winning on, which is like, Alberta is behind and I'm going to be the savior that catches us up to the rest of the country or or gives us our fair shake against Ottawa. And his his strategy to do that is to essentially be like the Western Canada version of Quebec. And I think that's super funny. Two I things think we I already noticed. are the Western Canada <laughs> version of Quebec. Two things I noticed this week I wanted to bring up on the Alberta party was it, it seems like they're trying to get in the conversation by engaging the outrage machine mm-hmm. a little bit. This could be part of that. <laughs> uh, and then also this part sort of plays into the outrage that parties like I, I don't even know their name they're so ridiculous there I said it the Alberta Independence Party is that it so all of these people that think that we can separate as a, as a province just lickety split like that no big deal and they're gonna campaign on this and write op-eds and McLean's or whatever and 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 push this narrative that like actually we just need to fight Canada harder um, this feels like this is just like a diet version of that. And it, it, it gets people upset. It gets them talking, but it, there's nothing really behind it. it. Like, would you agree from a policy standpoint, this would be a complete unmitigated disaster? I mean, I think the Alberta party was a laughing stock today because of this. <laughs> I don't know a single person. I mean, I think the mainstream media was all over it. Just kind of being like, what is this? Like, this is garbage. But uh, on the on the flip side, we talked in the last episode, like they have brought in a few Alberta Party and Liberal Party have brought in because they don't have the threat of actually running a government. They come up with some ideas that I, I think you've brought up, Natalie, that would be political suicide. So we've got uh, sales tax on the table. We've got huge investments in like IT and like new new tech and third lane highway. Sorry, that may be the. I think the Alberta Party actually thinks they can form government or the the official opposition. Like I think that's. That's maybe where it's coming from. The Alberta Liberals, like, they're not. Like, they're really not. They don't have a chance in hell of forming government. But I think the Alberta Party thinks they might actually. And they actually genuinely think this is, like, a thing that's going to help them win. The third parties in two-horse race usually, like, can play some kind of a role in moving uh, the conversation. But if they're so incoherent, I don't know which direction they want the conversation to be moved in, right? Should, right they're not going to be pulling anyone right or left. Yeah, it's, like, it's the issue with the Alberta Party from day one. Like the, their identity has been lost, and we're seeing that again today with their their platform release. Usually, in like a federal setting, you would see, say, a good idea from left or right just be adopted by the Liberals because that's how they've governed forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, do you guys have any thoughts as we close here tonight? 
just on like whether does Alberta suffer from a bit of the the polarization that we don't have some of that stuff like borrowing an, an idea or have we actually seen that? I think Alberta is just new to the idea that we change political parties yeah. once in a while, so it's too early to tell. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think we see that like with what Jessica Littlewood Instagrammed the other day, which was essentially just she essentially Instagrammed a picture of her with with Ed Stelmack and said, great to see Ed Stelmack at a fundraiser tonight in St. Michael. Well, context, uh, it was a Knights of Columbus fundraiser and she just happened to go up to him and ask for a picture and he's a nice guy and he took it. So again, back to Danielle's point, like I think that we're in Alberta not used to seeing another party in power. It's really weird for people to think like, okay, we don't have a PC government and maybe that's why the NDP in this situation, because Jeremy Nolase, who is uh, Rachel Notley's chief of staff, I believe, or principal secretary, retweeted someone who said, great to see former PC Premier Ed Stelmach supporting the NDP, which is not true, but it's to the NDP's benefit for it to appear that the PC Premier of, of, of the past is supporting the NDP because people are familiar with PC premiers. They're used to PC governments. So why wouldn't they try to look like they're just a continuation of the party that was in power for 40 years? Okay, so let's look ahead. One last take. What are we looking for this week? What's what's going to be the big outrage headline? Let's go around the room. Daniel. My hopes are on Derek, as always. <laughs> Derek. Derek burns down debate. Okay. Yeah, I think something's going to happen at the debate that's going to take up the conversation on Friday and Saturday. Okay. I want to see no more bozo eruptions from the UCP. <laughs> I want to see five bozo eruptions, <laughs> including like a nose, like a, someone wearing a nose. Okay, thank you guys. Let's talk again in a week. <laughs>